Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Okay. And welcome to Podcast Winterfell. It's episode, what, 287 of the podcast. Wow, I'm getting closer and closer to 300. Yay. Uh, this week, we are looking at the Duncan Egg novella from A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin, entitled The Mystery Night. My name is Matt Murdick, and I am from podcastwinterfell.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can also find contact links, social media links, all that good stuff, and podcast app links as well. And I would love it if you would take the time to leave me a written review on whatever podcast app that you use if you haven't, because that will enter you into a contest. The contest is for one of two copies of the Season 6 Game of Thrones official soundtrack. And that official soundtrack has lots of good songs by Ramin Javadi on it that accompanied Season 6 of the show. And I will give it to you in the format of your choice, MP3 or CD, whatever kind of format you prefer these days. Two copies, so you have uh, twice as good a chance of winning as if there was only going to be one copy given away. I do have over 300 entries in so far right now worldwide, and everybody who has left a review before is included in the contest. So you don't have to leave a new review uh, to be included in the contest. Just as long as you have written a review any time in the history of this podcast, then you are included. But if you haven't written a review, well, get on it, because you only have until October 4th, 2016 to do so in order to be part of this contest. That's enough about that. Time to bring on our panelists. We have two of the Red Widows returning this week. Unfortunately, Stephanie couldn't be with us. We want to give a quick shout-out to her. She had something else going on, I guess, and she couldn't make it this week. But we have returning, of course, the spreadsheet Red Widow, and that would be Kelly. Welcome back. And I was Stephanie, I will giggle double for you, my love, and uh, hopefully I have enough spreadsheet. I do have a spreadsheet this time, you guys. I know. That's <laughs> shocking. <laughs> but uh, I've got my checky blanket, and I'm, uh, I'm ready to talk about uh, the final book we have. There's nothing like talking about A Song of Ice and Fire with a checky blanket. That is for <laughs> sure. Uh, somebody who's always fact-checky. Oh, bad, Matt. Uh, with me is, uh, of course, our returning panelist who's been with me all year long with the Game of Thrones read and such. And welcome back, Susan. How are you? I'm fine, Matt, and uh, also eager to talk about the mystery tonight. So besides the techie blankets, do we all have our boots as well? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely need boots. Definitely em- need boots. Empty them out, yes. I'll un- empty all of my boots out on this on this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, why don't we first just start with a, a real quick summary? It's Dunk and Egg make their way north towards Winterfell, but stop in the Riverlands to attend a tourney, a wedding, and a tourney 
which ends up thrusting them into the birth of a new Blackfire Rebellion. That's kind of the gist of it. Uh, before we get started with any kind of points or anything, we'll do the same thing we did last time. Susan, I'm going to turn to you first this time and ask you, um, how did you like this story in terms of compared to the other ones or uh, just in terms of a work on its own? Did you find this one better or worse than the Sworn Sword? Um, you know, I like all of them. I don't particularly have a favorite between the three. Uh, frankly, uh, I've heard a lot of people tell me that they think this one is the weakest um, of the three. I, in my original reading, probably was least favored of the Sworn Sword. Uh, just the style of it was not particularly my type, but it's grown on me. So I really like them all. Right on. Uh, Kelly, is it better? Is it just different? Is it uh, worse? What do you think? I definitely think it's different. I've actually heard that the um, the Sworn Sword is the least favorite, I think, because of that slower pace and everything. But for me, I think this one was um, way more in line with the series, the main series. It felt so much more like a Song of Ice and Fire series than the first two, which kind of had a very different feel to them, I thought, than, than the main series. And it could have been just that this one was written... Um, so close to the other ones, like this one was published in 2010, mm. which uh, was between Feast for Crows and Dance, which closer to Dance, which came out in 11. So it's very likely that this is just George was just in the zone, you know, <laughs> when he was writing this one. So it just had that very, very familiar feel, which in some ways I, you know, made me really um, fond of it, but in other ways it didn't feel as much as a Dunkin' Egg story. You know, the climax wasn't really as exciting. Um, it was more like you just kind of are revealing things a little bit more abruptly, it felt like. Um, it was just a, So I felt like the, the Hedge Knight was like exciting, and you were meeting our heroes and experiencing like this great trial of seven, and you know, we have princes and lords in that one. But the Sworn Sword was like emotionally compelling, and we had these expectations about these characters, and George like masterfully manipulates us to like split those, you know. This one was, you know, it had more action and intrigue, definitely, um, and plot twists and secret identities, and a lot of those things are just a lot more familiar with the main series, I thought. So I liked it, but I think it wasn't as much of a Dunkin' Egg novella as it was a Song of Ice and Fire like novella, you know. Yeah, that's an interesting comparison, too, and I like both of your opinions. I personally, just because of the amount of Blood Raven in it and the intrigue in it, I actually really like this story, and maybe because it is more like the rest of the Song of Ice and Fire series. Uh, one aspect of it's more like the Song of Ice and Fire series is the uh, food descriptions that I could have done without, although they weren't <laughs> too long. It w- wasn't like pages and pages of it like you have in some of those later books. But uh, it, did, have you, did you read it in the, the paperback one, um, The Night of the Seven Kingdoms? Uh, I did not read it in the paperback form. I just have the Kindle <laughs> Cloud Reader version. It was a full page in The Nights of the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> Ah. Now, they are attending a feast. There hasn't been a proper feast in the other Dunkin' Egg novellas, so. Fair. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess he had to, he, has to, he has to put that little trademark into all of his books as well. 
And why don't we just uh, kind of, I don't really, again, this isn't a recap podcast. We're really just going to talk about the stuff that hits us and why and, and, and that kind of thing. But um, there is something that I noticed that I just kind of wanted to say right off the bat. And it's like uh, two dunk stories in a row here for me in the last couple of weeks where the first side is of some dead corpse or some corpse head and uh, crows haven't eaten off of it. George is just, he's just really mean, man. He, he sets the tone of, of something bad's going to happen right off the bat. Yeah, they start with, like, isn't he starting, like, with the head tonight? Oh, it's been a while since I read it, but isn't he burying Sir Arlen? Yes. Yeah. So it's like yeah. death, death, death is how we start all these. <laughs> More and we call them we call them the lighter, fluffier uh, <laughs> of the Song of Ice and Fire, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, nice and light and fluffy, a, a head sitting on a on a pike at the top of the town. Well, we never met any of those characters, so it's easier. <laughs> yeah, not any easier for me to think of crows eating their flesh off of them. Yeah, uh, I'd rather I'd rather them I'd rather them be dissolved in the ground where I can't see them. So. <laughs> Do you want to give a quick overview of the different versions of this like we did for the uh, Sworn Sword? I think that's a good idea. Susan, what do you got for us? Uh, well, um, as Kelly said, this came out in 2010, and it was originally in a, um, a compilation of short stories called The Warriors, um, which Martin and Garden, Gardner Dozier, Dozier's, a uh, friend of his that he uh, edits uh, some of this stuff with, uh, did this one. And um, so when it came out, it also came out in a audio format, which is the one I have of the original. And that one is read by a Patrick Lawler. I've never heard of him besides this. Uh, and when um, I had mentioned last time that the uh, the audio version of The Sworn Sword starts out with a, an overview of kind of the history of uh, uh, the Seven Kingdoms. This one doesn't, just goes straight into the story. Um, and then in terms of a um, uh, graphic novel, uh, they never made one for this, like they did for the Hedge Knight and the Sworn Sword, which is really too bad because they're, they're lovely, the, the two of those that came out. And then, uh, of course, it came out just this past year, uh, compiled with the other two stories in the Night of Seven Kingdoms. And in the audio version of that, we have it read by the actor Harry Lloyd, who played uh, the Seraph on uh, the television series. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, by the way, I just looked up Patrick Lawler. He has recorded over 300 audiobooks in just about every genre. Wow. He is been an Audi Award finalist several times and has received several audiophile earphones awards. He has won Publishers Weekly Listen Up Award, numerous library journal, and Kirkus, um, I guess, awards, uh, or Kirkus starred audio reviews, multiple editor picks, blah, blah, blah. Um, I did not save the audiobook, man. Did you listen? Have you listened to it? I have not. Oh, so have you, to, have you listened to any of the audiobooks for the Dunk? Not for Dunk and Egg, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the first one was the worst, where one of the readers would always say, Sire. Oh, so bad. And he does it a little bit. For, Patrick Lawler does it a little bit on this one. He just pronounces it, Sire. 
Oh. And he does it in his little kid dunk or egg voice, and it's just so grating. <laughs> um, so I'm definitely excited that uh, it has been re-recorded. <laughs> I want to hear that one. So well, evidently, I, I, he did not get nominated for an audiophile award uh, for this particular reading. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just a weird word too. It is spelled S-E-R, so I understood it. It's just like that doesn't that doesn't work for me. I was not feeling it. I don't think maybe he read, he's read George's books where you just misspell things, but you still pronounce it normal. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> Gave him the benefit of the doubt since this was a one-off for him, but it was, oh, it was painful. And if anyone's listened to it and, and you know, felt my pain, I wanted to tell you I was there with you. <laughs> well, he's the one that I originally heard it from, and um, I didn't mind him so much. I did notice that, you know, a few of the words weren't pronounced the way I would have expected them from hearing the main series, and he's no uh, Roy Dothreef. But I do really like Harry Lloyd's uh, interpretation. I think he, he did an excellent job with it. Oh, very cool. Well, I got issues with Roy Dotrice. I mean, Brian, come on. <laughs> well, all of those were also done before the show, so it hadn't really been, like, established that how you should say it, I guess. I don't know. I give him a little credit there. <laughs> okay. Maybe. I, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I look at that word, and I, I think I've seen people even name that before, um, and I never would have come up with that pronunciation myself. So. Uh, that's just me. That's me and my American ways. That's right. Uh, <laughs> well, you're entitled to your opinion. <laughs> Uh, let's get into this story then. Um, I guess, um, let's start with you, Susan. Uh, where would you like to start with here? Uh, the beginning. Um, (laughs) as you know, they're leaving and they're heading for, uh, with, with the intention to, uh, go to, uh, Lord Baron Stark. And if the, uh, when George sits around getting out the next Duncan egg, the, the uh, She-Wolves of Winterfell, as it's been uh, tentatively titled, uh, I have learned a little bit about the fact that this Lord Baron Stark gets killed by uh, the, the uh, Iron Man that he's fighting. So I bet that he will be already dead by the time they get there. And there's a number of women that in, in uh, Winterfell at that time that are kind of jockeying for power. There's a lot of young children, and a number of women. So it should be an interesting situation. Uh, But what I also found interesting as they're leaving Stony Sep, which we know from the main series that Arya stopped there with uh, the Brotherhood and went to the famous Peach there where uh, Robert Baratheon had hid out when the the battle happened there. So, uh, you know, it's nice to kind of tie things. One of the things I think that a lot of people enjoy about the Duncan Egg series is as it, it, it kind of broadens the world and it, there's so many tiebacks to the series. So I thought that was fun. Um, but also, as you're listening to, uh, to Dunk recount uh, in, in his mind what the Septon had said, I was caught by one thing uh, when he was talking about Lord, Lord Bloodraven. Uh, I know that We've talked before a little bit about the theory that uh, Melisandre could potentially be a child of Blood Ravens and Shira Sea Stars. And what I was caught by was when he said, a shadow came at his command to strangle Prince Valar's sons in his mother's womb. And even though I doubt that there's anything, you know, at all to that, I don't think, you know, Valar's sons were 
killed by some shadow demon or anything like that. I just was caught by by the idea that uh, Lord Raven could conjure shadow demons in, as uh, Melisandre does. That uh, that struck me as well. I got that. Also, just the whole idea of him using a glamour, which it seems that Melisandre, uh, we suspect in the books, has been using. The show has definitely made it seem apparent that she's been using a glamour on herself. Right. Um, right. And, uh, it, uh, you know, there, there's some allusions to that early on in the, in the chapter. Um, who could uh, a, a student of the dark arts who could change his face. And my first instinct, just because I've been thinking about Arya so often, was, oh, is he faceless man too? No, no. <laughs> then I realized it was more about a glamour thing, I think, is what they were alluding to. Yeah. And, and, of course, there's allusions to warging as well, which um, I think points a, a great deal towards his ability to get to, um, you know, the, his position that he gets to by the time Bran finds him. So. Right. The first time that they run into this uh, Sir Maynard Plum, his cloak is clasped by... Uh, a pin that has a large moonstone on it. Mm. So, you know, I know that, you know, we've talked about the glamours often being associated with the use of a jewel. Right. So that, that, you know, I thought that was interesting. So you are among the many readers, and I'll, I'll get to you too, Kelly, on this one, but you are among the many readers who believe that uh, Maynard Plum was, in fact, blood ravered in, uh, in a glamour. Yeah, I think that there's several hints to it, and um, do you want me to elaborate on, on what I saw about that now, or wait till we kind of go through the story a little more? Uh, we can wait till we get to the, go okay. through the story a little more, but I would like to hear Kelly's opinion. Do you do you think that uh, Maynard Plum was, in fact, Blood Raven in some kind of glamour? On a like, reread, I think, yeah, like Susan said, like, there's a lot of hints at it, and we... I feel like, you know, we brought it up. We can go into it a little bit, right? <laughs> I feel like we'll be people hanging, and I'll forget to come back to some of these. I do want to say that there is, like, one uh, very clumsily thrown-in line that George does add to make it seem like, well, how did Blood Raven know everything that was happening here? And the only blood that was shed was the man who had um, claimed that he was one of his spies, and so they killed him. <laughs> so yeah. it was kind of thrown in, and it was very blunt. And it was just kind of like, well, that kind of would explain how he knew everything. And if you didn't catch any of those other hints before, that one was blatantly there for you to accept and move on if you were wondering how Blood Raven knew. So that's that true. Was a, there is a very logical explanation for everything if we don't want to believe in the magic. However, <laughs> that I'm sorry. Count. Kelly, what was it? Who was killed? I was confused. Who was killed? I didn't catch it. Yeah, it was um, near the end. So it says mm-hmm. uh, a plaus- So it's a. Uh, this is like kind of the plausible excuse for how Blood Raven showed up in time. Um, okay. But it's presented uh, like near the end. Um, the quote is: "The only blood that was shed that day came when a man in service to Lord." Verwell began to boast that he had been one of Blit Raven's eyes and would soon be well rewarded. And then he goes ah. on and, and then somebody slit his throat and says, you know, drink that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was a little obtuse for George's taste, so it kind of seemed to, to stick out a little bit as a red herring. Yeah. Uh, it, it, that, uh, that did seem a little... Uh, well, it it gives it gives the non magic believers a, a chance to 
that gives them an out. That's what sure. he likes. He likes to give people an out all the time. But I, I agree, Susan. I, I guess we we can go ahead and go through with it since we're this far into it. But some of the other things that you felt uh, might make the case for the fact that Blood Raven was in fact glamoring as uh, uh, Maynard Plum. Well, I think uh, a lot of it when they're having that conversation uh, around the campfire when they get together with the with the uh, hedge knights and uh, Plum introduces himself and Egg asks him if he is a uh, you know related to the fairies Plum um, mm-hmm. and he says distantly and uh, we the story of Plum is that he was. Um, the son of Ossifer Plum and this uh, Elena Targaryen princess. And uh, the idea that there's all those jokes about that with this uh, brown Ben Plum later on, and Cersei alludes to the joke, too, about the fact that Plum died on his wedding night, and then when the child was born, there's these jokes about he must have had a six-foot cock because he would have to have been in the grave to impregnate her. Um, so there's the idea that uh, spoken or not spoken so much that he could have been um, Aegon, the unworthy son, this uh, one that uh, Plum is saying that he was you know, potentially a distant relation to. Mm. And then later at the dinner table when they're talking, um, you know, somebody says, uh, it, may, it may have been Dunk, I think, that uh, if all the rumors about uh, Aegon's uh, Aegon were true, then you know we'd all be his sons, and uh, and he pipes up, "Who says we're not?" You know, so I think there's you know th- those things are George kind of giving us a nod and a wink that you know, that's who this guy is, um, and then of course he he shows up so conveniently at the right time to to save Dunk, mm-hmm. and there's the fact that when they're in his his tent, he uh, he thinks that he he looks odd, which you know, the way it's described makes it sound like his he's able to see there's something off with this glamour a little bit that he's able to see right. that, that his appearance is not what it should be. Well, one of my favorite tie lines, if I could just say, one of my favorite tie lines is the fact that both Maynard Plum and Blood Raven use the phrase nest of adders. Mm-hmm. That's pretty overt, I thought. That was that. fairly overt, I thought, as well. Yeah, I didn't catch that one. Good. Um, It just reminds me of Black Adder. I don't know if anyone's ever watched that show. So (laughs) it stood out to me for that reason. There's no other reason I would notice that other than (laughs) Rowan Atkinson is amazing. (laughs) Heard good things about it, but I've never seen it. Highly recommended. Um, There was, uh, oh, so the the first time we see um, Maynard is they are in a ring of weirwood stumps which we know Blood mm-hmm. Raven is very fond of. Um, mm-hmm. Not sure if he is at this point in time. It's kind of hard to, to gauge some of this stuff. and But it, it does seem to um, allude to, like, thematically, he is associated with those. So it could have just been a George clue yeah. at us. Because there was no other um, significance to those, I thought, except for maybe that the Whitehall, Whitehall mm-hmm. had been, they said something about the, the rafters were all weirwood. Um, right. So maybe those trees have been just recently cut down for White Walls. Well, and- Blood Raven's family, uh, is their uh, their sigil of their their house, Raven Tree Hall, is a um, you know big old werewolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, the petrified one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, well, and I was sitting there thinking that maybe those stumps were cut down. That the, the the stumps were what helped make uh, the uh, the the white wall castle. There were there were weirwood rafters in the in the. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear you say oh, that. Oh. <laughs> you were I was funny. thinking that when, when I heard that, I was wondering, hmm, I wonder what Blood Raven thinks about that, you know, cutting down the weirwood trees. Yeah, it might be looked at as kind of a taboo to do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's see. I think there was a couple others, just like his defense of um, Blood Raven when uh, Sir Kyle's kind of going off about how, you know, the throne could take a hint from how Stark is handling this. Blood Raven does nothing. He's the hand. What is he? he should take a hint from these guys who are actually doing action. And Maynard just kind of shrugs and says, explains basically Blood Raven's whole like uh, strategy. And it doesn't seem to bat an eye that he's like. And this was actually kind of um, important for later because what he describes is that uh, the quote is, his eye is fixed on Tyrosh, where Bittersteel sits in exile, plotting with the sons of Damon Baratheon. Damon Blackfire, so he keeps the king's ships close at hand, lest they attempt to cross. So it's, at first, I just read that as a haha, Blood Ravens defending Blood Raven. <laughs> but then, as like the, mm-hmm. the Blackfire plot unfolded a little bit, I was like, oh, that's actually relevant. <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, there's a bunch of well, let's just say there's a bunch of like little clues and stuff. But what do you guys think? You know, like was it well done? Was it over? Was it? like satisfying enough that you believe it? Yeah, I think in so many of these cases, you know, similar to, uh, you know, uh, never saying that Dunk is is not a knight or, you know, some of the things that we get in the main series, I think, you know, George never overtly comes out and declares, you know, what is what. But I think that there is significant enough evidence that it just makes sense. Yeah. To me, there there is uh, so much in here. It's kind of like looking at an R plus L equals J. It almost mm-hmm. it feels like an accepted truth, even if it's not spoken, um, because there's so much evidence in it, um, and and because it's so condensed, perhaps also um, for me. Yeah. The most like mm-hmm. compelling part is I think that Maynard just disappears at the end. Like he just you know he vanished off, and they they have no explanation for it. I'm like that's a you know just in terms of like a for a writer, that seems like such a dissatisfying end for a character you've been writing, unless it's supposed to stand out and right. you know call to attention that he disappeared and then who appeared. <laughs> so that was pretty compelling mm-hmm. for me, or just in terms of like a writing attempt at, at dropping hints like that. So we we all agree. This I think I don't know, Susan. You said that he's usually not so overt about his. Um, like plot well, twists like that, yeah. He, there were like two others here, right? That were just kind of like spelled out. Uh, what what I meant is, um, he he may have a lot of clues. I think he just he what he doesn't do is he doesn't just say it. You know, he doesn't make the declaration that this is what this is. You know, yeah. He uses it for the readers to come to their own conclusions. But there's so much of it that I think it it's you know it's pretty easy to to argue that that's what it is. I just felt like there were like two other levels of like plot twists that were like super spelled out and then slightly suggestedly spelled out in this book. So it was kind of this, this one being like this third kind of secretive one that he didn't spell out almost was a little bit even more subtrue, you know, subtle in that way. Like the, um, uh, John the Fiddler being Damon and then the dwarves stealing the eggs were the other two that were kind of spelled out, you know, or that mm-hmm. either directly revealed or kind of suggested without being spelled out. 
Mm-hmm. So those two being spelled out so um, overtly kind of made the blood raven secretive thing actually feel a little bit more subtle to me mm-hmm. in comparison. It was harder to catch. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I would say that um, John the Fiddler being uh, Damon Targaryen is conclusive at the end there. I mean, there are oh, sure. yeah. everything. So, yeah. so it, that, that's one that is really kind of you know, declared as, you know, that's what this is. Yeah, just comparing those three, like, mm-hmm. identity, I, you know, revelations, basically, as in terms of how overt they were, yeah. you know, made that one seem more subtle. Well, speaking of overt and uh, John the Fiddler, <laughs> I mean, everybody got the same sense of what John the Fiddler was actually like on, on the tower when he was talking to Dunk, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. And that, was, that, that, seemed, that seemed a little bit overt to me as well. Um, much more overt than the way George typically lays that kind of stuff in. Yeah. And, you know, and through this, as uh, Dunk is thinking back on both Hansel Tuttle and on, um, uh, oh gosh, what's her name now from uh, Sworn Sword? Rowan. Yeah. Thinking about both of these women uh, periodically or at the same time through this made me wonder, are we going to, you know, as the series progresses, are we going to have him looking back on each of the women that he meets, you know, as he goes along on his journey, and then uh, will he ever look back on, uh, <laughs> on this guy on Damon? Yeah, there was no other love interest in this book, you know, maybe he'll look yeah. back on this one. And yeah. Oh, what could have well, been. The, the other thing that I think about as far as Cancel was, the fact that I don't know why we didn't talk about it last time, or maybe one of you guys said it and I missed it, but I, I didn't realize that Dunk's shield had been broken. Oh yeah, I it wasn't clear it. until the, the beginning of this one. I th- I don't think I realized that it had been like irreparably damaged. Yeah. Uh, My first note on this was that. Oh. Yeah, because I'm sitting there thinking, well, there you go. There's the metaphor right there. He's never going to find Tenzel. Yeah, but you know what? Doesn't um. He must get it redone. Because right. Yeah. Well, he said he yeah. was going to get this one repainted at some point, but yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, the long inch, uh, the five with long inch. The five with long inch evidently smashed. Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> although, in tying in with the fight with the long inch with this book, did anyone catch like Egg has the exact same line, um, in both books when he when uh, Dunk is fighting, Egg yells at him, "Get him, sir." Get him, he's right there. And he does the same thing when he's in the water fighting Long Inch. Yeah, he he was doing that as attorney too. I think that's that's you know when when he's watching a fight, that's his kind of standard thing. He was you know because when he was they were watching the jousters the first day and so forth, he would he would do that at various matches. Yeah, well you know he's eleven, right? right. I mean, yeah. What kind of a vocabulary is he gonna have? Fair, especially at a sporting match. Right. You know. Directly redundant. It was pretty, yeah. pretty cute. It was. It, I guess we could be um, more polite and say it was character consistency. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He definitely wants to. Uh, you know, who, the person that he is uh, rooting for, he definitely wants to give him as much help as he can. He's right there. You know, in case they can't see. <laughs> if their vision's obscured. <laughs> Very good. Uh, other ties to to the Song of Ice and Fire series, really quick. Now, let me see if I got this right. Is there is Black Tom Heddle, is he related to Masha in any way? Is that why the the story of the end becomes even that bigger of a deal in Feast? I was wondering about that. I don't know, I, and I haven't, I, I didn't try to research that or anything. 
I don't know if there's any information about that, but it's the only other time that I can recall hearing that name. And you would wonder if maybe because of the fact that they got kind of dis, you know, the name got kind of dishonored here. Uh, it sounds like he kind of married up a little bit in marrying uh, Butterwell's daughter. So maybe because of this, their family has kind of gone down a little bit in the world to where they would be you know, in keeps rather than of the you know land, small landed gentry type. Yeah, I was wondering that. What, what do you think, Kel? As you were speaking, I did look up the Heddle family, and they do. He is um, listed as allegiant. You know, his allegiance is to them, the the House Heddle, which is a house, a noble house of landed knights from the Riverlands. So, um, it could be that they're all just related, and they've just kind of slowly expanded in the Riverlands. Mm-hmm. He's moved around, because yeah, the inn at the crossroads is is not too far from. Uh, where this white halls was, <laughs> or what white walls was? <laughs> okay, I I wasn't sure of the geography. I know that one was on. Uh, they they started off on one side of the lake, and I guess they ferried across to the other, right? So they were yeah, closer was, to mm-hmm. the twins probably mm-hmm. uh, than Heron Hall. Yeah, it was very confusing because I wasn't sure why they needed a ferry to get to it. I was like, is it on an island? Is there a river? I, but they. Yeah, it confused me, but I just kind of accepted it eventually. I was like, all right, they need to, for whatever reason, they took a ferry. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like, White Wall sounds like it would have been beautiful. I know. I did mourn the Blood Raven's threat of how he was going to destroy it. Well, he did. He did. He he took it apart, and they ended up, what did he say he was going to do? Salt the land so that nobody could plant flowers there like they had at the Red Field. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He hadn't done it as of the book ending, but he did promise, so we'll see. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't heard of it since then in the other series, so it doesn't seem promising. Yeah, it doesn't that seem it's like right. it's there anymore, that's for sure. No. <laughs> it's a land now. Um, yeah. I thought I'd heard that somewhere that it had, uh, but don't know for sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, other ties to A Song of Ice and Fire story. I mean, am, am I crazy in thinking... Because I know that Walder Frey is pretty old. He's almost as old as as Maester Eamon was, right? So is oh, yeah. this little boy, this little boy who's so wretched and looking and acting and looking, this is Walder, right? Oh yeah. Okay, I just <laughs> wanted to make sure that I wasn't crazy. Uh, very good. I was so pleased with how like demonized <laughs> George made him. <laughs> yeah, as a child, that's perfect. <laughs> I had no doubt after like the second or third time they talked about how horrid this child was that I was like, oh, this has got to be him. <laughs> you know, one thing I found interesting was the description of his father. I mean, he sounded kind of elegant and, uh, you know, fairly attractive. So um, maybe it was uh, his mother where he, the weasel uh, look came in from. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, he's described as, you know, a, uh, a uh, you know, slim, attractive man. Uh, you know, there's nothing. And then the son is described with the, you know, the weak chin and all this. So uh, there, there isn't anything negative in the description of the, the parent. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, and of course, all of the phrase that we know in the main series, well, they're all descendants of Walter, direct descendants of Walter. So, mm-hmm. um, director somewhat direct descendants of Walter, I guess. He's had how many kids? So many. Oh, my gosh, so many. Uh, oh, I'm actually on the page. He has 22 true-born sons and seven true-born daughters. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's, he's been busy. <laughs> yeah, been busy. Yeah. 
Um, did you guys have any thoughts on the egg that we saw? And the the, the very last minute that its its disappearance was explained. <laughs> yeah, thoughts on it in terms of like you know is it one of the ones that we've seen later or something like that? Yeah, there that were three kind of three eggs. That? Three eggs were described in. Um, Pardon me. Crosby. <laughs> I've um, I've looked at that. I didn't look at it this time, but I've looked at it in the past. In fact, I think we discussed some in in uh, one of the uh, conversations that I had in in one of our readings, um, Matt. And it doesn't seem to be because this egg is red primarily. It has the gold flecks and the black whorls, but that doesn't match up with Danny's black egg. So, um, Correct. Yeah. you know, what about eggs? Egg. White and green swirls, yeah, these are all listed as whereabouts unknown. Okay. So they are all separate. And Eamon's egg that he describes um, that exists, not that he doesn't describe the colors of it, but also unknown. So, But he did also say that there are a bunch of eggs at Dragonstone, so any of the number of these could have occurred or appeared. Right. Bit, yeah. But now we know that maybe Blood Raven has one. Did you guys think that? Well, first of all, I want to know. Be honest. Tell me true. Did you guys realize how the egg had disappeared before it was spelt out? <laughs> no, no. No. I did I, I it had to be spelt out to me. But then I thought, you know, maybe this is some kind of uh metaphor for Tyrion riding a dragon someday. I like that. <laughs> well, because of the because the uh dwarf is the one who uh gets it? Yeah. Yeah. And where did he get it from? The cistern? Uh-huh. Was Tyrion in charge of? <laughs> yeah, truly. Could be, could be. <laughs> but no, yeah, when Dunk smelled the and was trying to make small talk with that ugly dwarf and did not put any of that together, I was like, oh, that's a weird. Yeah. <laughs> that was a weird situation. <laughs> uh, I also just thought, you know, George definitely likes to incorporate dwarfs in his stories, and we've got. These here, and then uh, of course Tyrion, and then in the uh, princess and the queen, and in, in that uh, those stories of the dance of the dragon, um, both that one I think in the Road Prince, um, and maybe even other places you have reference to that uh, mushroom who was a court jester who you know wrote some scurrilous stories <laughs> and so forth. So uh, he's got quite a few. Yeah, I think they're just like memorable in in their mm-hmm. in their characteristics and and their place in the world, and they can kind of go about and not be um, suspected of having like interactions or or crimes and stuff like that, and just kind of give them a little bit of invisibility. Yeah, well, the court jesters, I think, get that <laughs> you know naturally because they're oh, they can get away with it. Right, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just glad that it wasn't just like dropped in. He actually played a part and actually could lead to things down the road. Cause perhaps Blood Raven had. Did you guys think Blood Raven had it, or did you think that he just kind of guessed what happened because he has spies? Do you think he worked for them? Because Doug kind of Dunk suggests at the end that you know why not a dwarf, or why not you know one of the eyes, one of the thousand eyes in one that works for Blood Raven. Why not it belongs to a troop of comic dwarves? Did you think that? They were actually working for him? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Do you think Blood Raven has an egg now? Yes. Do you think he I mean, he, I th- oh, I think he had one. I think he had one at that point in time. What he did with it, 
I have no idea. You know, yeah. I, I won't. I wouldn't. You know, like <laughs> put money on the fact that he's cut it up there in the cave or anything like that. But uh, um, I think I think it's more likely that he may still have um, a dark sister, the sword. Mm. I think that's a possibility, but I, I, I doubt the egg. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't think any of these eggs are are um, ones that turned out to be Danny's, just by their description. But I was uh, amused by how uh, Dunk says, "Well, if I win, then we both have an egg." And egg doesn't say anything. And he's like, uh, "You know, like he's asking why he won't comment." And he's like, "Well, you know, you told me to keep my mouth shut if I." Well, he was more like agreeing. He was right. like, "I really should learn to hold my tongue." Right. <laughs> Very solemn. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's, a, he's a clever one. You're gonna get the crap beat out of you, sir. <laughs> get him, Learned. get him, sir. He's right over there. He's gonna beat the crap out of you. At this. Yeah. You're no good at this. You're no good at this jousting stuff. Yeah, yeah. How Dunk keeps asking about are they gonna have a melee? You know, first he asks, he brings it up with Egg, who tells him, you know, I'm out of the wedding, and then he brings it up again with the uh, uh, at the dinner, and they, you know, kind of joke about that too. Mm-hmm. He's just really hoping for it, but nope. Egg was mm-hmm. always right. He's got to trust Egg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kelly, have you got a, a point that you would like to bring up? Oh, sure. So uh, continuing with our, our ties or history repeating itself or George running out of ideas, <laughs> I thought that the, um, the Damon and Alan, is that how we, we're going to pronounce that? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. His Lord Allen um, was uh, their relationship was reminiscent of uh, Rhaegar and our our favorite John Con. Hmm. Maybe then perhaps Renly and Loras. Uh, uh, yeah, well, Renly and Yeah, I, I guess it, Rhaegar was more reminiscent because he's a you know Targaryen, but I guess yeah, and it he did seem like John Con kind of was like longing after him that maybe kind of appeared to be like maybe unreciprocated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think I'd believe so. Similar, yeah. I also like yeah, the Renly Loras seemed a little bit more equal, even and maybe even like a little manipulative on Loras's end, but and a lot more overt. Oh, well, you say that, but I missed it the first time I read that. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, things like, I want your sword? Come on. <laughs> You'd be surprised at the things men miss. <laughs> well, now, you know, and and this Sir Alan, he wanted to be the, uh, you know, if uh, Damon had uh, gotten the throne, he wanted to be the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. And... Uh, you know, Dunk's the one. And, and there is, there's this one part where uh, uh, Dunk says something about, uh, you know, well, you know, if that happens, I'll become the King's Guard, you know, commander of the King's Guard in a joke, he says. Yeah, the, the um, thing about dragon's eggs hatching in oh, King's yeah. Guard in the same way. Right, and we right. Know that the dragon's eggs hatched, and we know that Dunk does eventually go there uh, right. at that point, so... Yeah. yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was funny from just from a like, oh, if you only knew Dunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that part that part was kind of cute, and you know we don't know Dunk doesn't have any prophetic skills that we've seen. So when he said to uh, uh, Fireball Glendale, what was it Glendon Gelden? Uh, Glendon Ball. Yeah. Yes, Glendon Ball. When he said to him, like you know, 
or we thought to him, you know, you have as much chance of becoming a white knight as I do. Ah. I wonder if that ever comes true. I bet you he does. I bet. You know, I think instead of us looking at it as uh, him having prophetic uh, ideas, I think it would be more of George giving us a little foreshadowing there. I wouldn't be surprised at all. For sure, yeah. <laughs> and then um, also just a slight reminiscent from A Song of the Fire series was that um, the way that Butterwell's sons split up between the reds and the blacks was described um, reminded me of, uh, if you call the Swan family, and they had one right. son fighting for Renly and then Stannis, and then the other was um, Balin Swan, our favorite, who <laughs> ended up being uh, added to the White Knights for, uh, under Joffrey. So kind of hedging your bets. And I think there was even a mention in the Tyrion chapter of if he had a third son, he would have been fighting for a Robb Stark. <laughs> right, right. And when Jamie uh, questions him when he has his first meeting uh, as uh, commander with these uh, different knights at the table, that's the one thing that he asks him about. He wants to know that uh, he's going to be able – he's like, you know, I'm not so oh, worried yeah. about your loyalty. I'm worried about your brother's loyalty and – you know, what would happen if your brother came in, you know, into a situation and he was on the other side? You know, what would you do? And he says, well, I wouldn't do what you did. <laughs> that was a good answer. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I had forgotten. I was just looking in, because I remember that was in, like, a Clash of Kings when all those Tyrion and King's Landing chapters were. So then, yeah, I didn't even think to think of how Jamie would have asked him about it. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Susan. I was just going to say, one thing I wanted to point out was with this uh, Lord Gorman Peak of Starpike, and uh, he originally had the three castles, and two of them were stripped from him. Well, I was looking at that a little bit and uh, found out that uh, you know the Peaks were the ones who had been opponents of the Manderleys. And so when the Manderleys had to leave uh, the river, or re- leave the Reach and go north, the castle that they left, Dunstanbury, was given to the Peak family. Oh, so that's one of the one of uh-huh. the three plus uh-huh. the one that they already had. What was you know the third of the three? Has it been put out oh, anywhere? I can look at it real quick. I didn't write it down, but um, and the thing what what I did find out was uh, there has been no reference to say who these two castles have been given to since that time, but they were, you know, they were taken from them um, by uh, the throne. Yeah. Yeah. I'll find that here and take me a second. But, uh, okay. I did like the revelation that this was the man that killed Roger Pennytree. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe a little satisfying, but also maybe a little sad the way Dunk kind of took it at the end when he said he kind of owed him one, but in a really sad way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Took the time to close his eyes for him. Well, it's uh, White Grove. So they originally had Star Pike, Dunstanbury, which was the Manderleys, and then White Grove. And Dunstanbury and White Grove, we don't know who they are. You know, if, if they've just been kept in the name of the the king, or whether they've actually been awarded to somebody. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Thanks for that info, Susan. What else you got on this? Oh, let's see. Um, we have a lot here. Take a turn my pages here. <laughs> I don't have it all on the computer, but I've been 
writing well, down I like, words, so. I like the sound, yeah. effect, the volume. The sound of actual <laughs> actual pages <laughs> turning. Paper yes. moving. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you know, of course, it was just uh, you know fun that uh, poor Dunk was given the task of taking the uh, the bride upstairs uh, in the bedding ceremony. So, <laughs> you know, which. Uh, yeah, John the Fiddler recruits him for that, and of course it's not something Dunk wants to do. But the fact that he does it is what allows him to go up and see the the dragon's egg firsthand. Then, oh, and, and uh, the privy in the chamber. Don't forget. Right, 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 <laughs> and the dwarves that were. You know, the... that we all thought was just an entertaining anecdote, but no, that was important. <laughs> right. It was all there for us to put together, and we just didn't until it hit us over the head with it. Felt a fool. (laughs) Oh, uh, but yeah, one thing that I did note, too, was um, uh, this particular Blackfire Rebellion was the only one that wasn't supported by Bittersteel, you know, without his involvement. And uh, as the hedge knights are sitting around the table talking about who's going to be there and so forth, they bring up... um, also, uh, Bracken, the brood of Bracken, and you know, mm-hmm. would he p- potentially be here? And you know, someone, uh, someone says, Nah, he's not going to be here. So I think that you know, it's kind of due to the fact that if if uh, Bittersteel had been involved in this, then I bet the Brackens would have been there. But mm. since he wasn't, that's you know, that's the reason there. I love the fact that it was uh, the Blackwoods were part of the had to be mentioned as part of the force that came for Blood Raven. Constantly. <laughs> and have the Brackens and the Blackwoods in there. Here's, here's a, a, a another thing. You guys were talking about this in the last podcast, and, and maybe I'm taking this a bit too far, uh, that the whole tinfoil hat thing goes on. But, uh, yeah, I know. It's so shocking. <laughs> um, but just, I started thinking about this, and right at the beginning of the story, um, when Dunk... Uh, is kind of exaggerating the egg about his role about stealing the head, uh-huh. Do you connect that to any kind of exaggeration that he might do about being knighted? I mean, since we know that he's capable of exaggerating stories. Yeah, that's possible. What that reminded me of was, you know, when they talked about all the things they did with his head until it was so deteriorated that they ran into a pot shop and threw it in the kettle. <laughs> and that made me think about the singer that uh, Tyrion sent Braun after and the idea that that man was potentially ended up in a, a pot shop in a stew somewhere. I'll never <laughs> eat a bowl of brown again. Right, right. <laughs> never, so, ever you know, bowl of brown. So this was just some more evidence that you really don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. <laughs> oh, dear. I I think that that is kind of like a character trait of, of Dunk that kind of is consistent. That makes sense. Yeah. He, although it's not consistent that he doesn't, think of the correction to himself. Like maybe the, you know, this is kind of like a little exaggeration that doesn't really matter. So he can kind of think of the actual events without feeling too guilty. Whereas if he actually lets himself think about the fact that he wasn't knighted, he'll feel way too guilty. So he does kind of exaggerate and. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the trait is similar, but the, the way, he, since we have his internal um, thoughts a little bit to some degree, that part's not super consistent. Yeah. Right. Yeah, thinking back to that too, I've been uh I've actually been reading The Hedge Knight with my uh one daughter and uh just going over the part where um Dunk was asked 
to to night the um, the boss away, and after you know he gets called away, and so you know that's when uh, the a laughing storm does it instead. But it, it immediately talks about how Dunk felt both a little bit of guilty and relieved. So there, you know, there again, it's a little bit more of that evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the thing I also, uh, and this ties, I guess, to the main series in a way also, is back to that story about Ossifer Plum. Uh, the princess Elena Targaryen, the one, and it was one of the three that uh, Baylor had, um, uh, you know, they were his sisters that he had put in the maiden vault, and then after he died, you know, they eventually, this, this is the one who actually did the most, you know, she actually went on to have, I think, three different husbands and so forth, but before she married Ossifer Plum, she was um, in love with this uh, Alan uh, Valerian, who had, they got lost at sea. And she had a pair of twins um, by him. And those twins, which had the last name Waters, are related to that old man that Jamie has the interaction with who tells them that he has a drop of Targaryen blood in him and he, he has the name uh, Longwaters <laughs> because he had, uh, <laughs> I guess, eventually what happens is, you know, like a generation or two, after the you know the one who's the bastard, you can you can modify the name somewhat. So that's where they you know they modified it to Longwaters, and nice. so that's that guy. <laughs> so we How have <laughs> Brown Ben Plum there over there with Daenerys, who is related to this uh, Targaryen, and then we have the guy in the uh, in the dungeon working in the dungeon there, and we can trace both of them back. So we you know we got a got a trail there. So they are Targaryens. Master yeah. consistency, George. <laughs> uh, when I hear stuff like that, I'm like, I don't care the gender of the horse. That kind of thing is way more complicated, I oh, think, and yeah. impressive, you know? <laughs> oh, dear, yes. That's amazing. <laughs> and I mean, just reading this book and keeping track of all the people that he was kept bringing up, and I'm like, is that a new name? And I, like, searched my Google Docs. <laughs> I'm like, no, he mentioned that before. Like, he's just incredible. Granted, it's his job, but still, like, he's really, really good at it. <laughs> What have you got mm-hmm. first, Kelly? Oh, I was looking at the uh <laughs> I scroll through my page. <laughs> I was looking at some of the of the, the transition like the dunk character arc that has happened over these couple books and it was really sweet to see him kind of have a couple of really loyal callbacks to Steely Pate. Like Steely Pate made me that armor or good strong helm and didn't, that's why I, I didn't get my brains bashed in. <laughs> I really appreciated that. Um, and, you know, he had, like, this great bookend, and I know there's going to be more sunken eggs, and, and that's great, but, like, just for these three that are in this mystery, or the um, Night of the Seven Kingdoms trilogy that I'm hoping are kind of going to be thematically alike, and then the next two or three will be thematically alike. This character arc of him going from this really shy and insecure and awkward, like just got knighted baby <laughs> and um, being introduced and trying to get himself into attorney. And then now at this, this great scene where he kind of calls out, you know, at the, um, in the feast, uh, the feast hall and he mm. yells out your grace and he calls out Damon and he just kind of lays down the law and is so self-assured about what is right and what is the moral thing to do. And I feel like that kind of gives him, gives him like the words that he's 
Cook wants to say, and he actually makes it happen. Like he makes them pull. He convinces Damon. He says the right words to convince Damon to let um, let the 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 henchman out of the um, the cellar or being tortured. <laughs> yeah, let's let him ball out. You yeah. know, following that to uh, to a conclusion of of the ne- or the, of that development uh, to the next book, um, maybe maybe it may make it easier to see how he uh, easily wins over old man, right? Definitely, yeah. And this one doesn't take very doesn't take place very long after the Sworn Sword. Right. It seems to be just uh, the only time that has passed has kind of been their journey from the Reach to this place. Right, like a couple months, if that. Right. Is implied. Um, so yeah, he's he's definitely kind of made this transition after all of these experiences into being a little bit more self assured and. You know, and at least like familiar with his abilities. Like he knows he's not good at jousting, but he knows he's good at melee. And he's actually kind of—it's great to see a character like that become confident. He's like, oh, if only there was a melee, I would be good at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and and yeah. like even in these other areas where like just speaking up to, you know, uh, someone that these other people look to as as a king, you know, and that's someone way above him. And even when he thought he was just like a lordly hedge knight, he thought he was above him and didn't couldn't eat with him. But by the end, he's calling him out. Good call there. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, the uh, calling this guy out. Uh, I didn't quite understand why everybody was calling um, Damon a pretender. Because he clearly was Targaryen. He was having dreams. He was. Um, he had all of the physical traits. Or he was clearly Blackfire, I guess I should say. Yeah. Why would they call him a pretender? Just because he uh, because he wasn't endorsed by... I think, I think that that's a common terminology that's used whenever somebody is going for a throne and they're not necessarily... Worthy of it? Uh, they don't necessarily have the right, yeah, the right to it. Okay. Um, so, um, for instance, like uh, Henry... Uh, the eighth father, Henry the Seventh, you know, kind of ended the War of Roses. You know, I'm sure. I thought, yeah, I'm pretty sure he was referred to as a pretender. I've I've seen that historically in in a lot of ways. So okay, that that's why. Okay, I didn't, to get the, I didn't get the reference. I haven't. I'm right, not good enough right. student of uh, medieval history and that kind of thing. I guess. Yeah, and so I'm not. I'm afraid. not either. I'm not either. So for sure, I, this would just be my take on it. Is that he um, is the son of who they called the pretender? Like he was. Um, Damon Blackfire was definitely called the pretender by loyalists, Mm -hmm. and since he's his son, and he's like kind of following in his footsteps, trying to incite rebellion and basically fill that role. And even worse, he like he doesn't have the sword, so he's like a double pretender. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's just it's historic to do that. Okay, doesn't mean you're more sense. I, I, I was worried that we were dealing with another Aegon kind of situation here, Phagon situation. Uh, uh, it didn't make any sense to me. I, I have myself, I guess, too much in the context of the, of the main mm-hmm. series, uh, yeah. and so that's why I was being weird about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they could have even, yeah, you know, possibly. Um, uh, well, yeah, it, it just depends on your point of view, because like Viserys could say that um, Robert Baratheon was a pretender sitting on mm-hmm. his throne. And Robert could maybe call Viserys a pretender, you know, that he didn't have a right to challenge for the throne anymore because he, he had you know, taken it. So I think you can you know, kind of look at it that way, too. Okay. 
Um, I saw a mention of Lord and Lady Smallwood. Uh, they were crossing over on the ferry, and that just put me in mind of mm-hmm. the whole um, you know, chapter where, where Arya went to, to Lady Smallwood's. And, Acorn Hall? Yes. Yeah, yes. and I think their nephew ended up jousting once um, and lost, <laughs> I, I believe, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of cute. Um, I'm not sure if I'm misremembering who, now that I'm thinking about it. Someone's nephew I thought jousted in one. <laughs> um, probably right. And how about this um, uh, the snail knight? Yes, we haven't talked about Uther. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's talk about Uther. Go ahead. Oh dang. Matt, start us off. You've been you've been quiet. I want to hear you what you gotta say. What did you think of this guy? As a hype man, would he, would you, well, would you I, I, I love that you know, he's just like uh he he's very good at uh at just playing the playing a game, man. Yeah, um, that manager, would you hire him? <laughs> all about like I, I tell you what I would want to be I would want to be his agent for all of the and and get my dig on on his takes is what I would want to be booking for a whole bunch yeah. of uh, booking for a whole bunch of attorneys you know um yeah. very very seemingly very adept at uh, at at uh, winning his his thing was about feigning himself at the end it didn't seem like he had bought off people to take the fall for him, right? It was the other guy that was buying people off to take the fall for him, right? Yeah, that got convoluted, but yes, that's what was happening. The uh, John the Fiddler's people were paying off his competitors, whereas Uther was just like either lulling them into a sense of security, like, oh, I'm just a snail, like he did to Dunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, or And then actually having skill to, to make it seem like either a, a, a tough victory or an easy victory, depending on how he wanted it to you know, be perceived. And he's a businessman. Oh, he was good. Mm-hmm. There's a whole different concept of like how you can be a knight in the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> it was very interesting. Attorney <laughs> yeah. knight, yeah. right? Not, not a uh, not a uh, a hedge knight or a landed knight, but attorney knight. I love that. I thought yeah. that was great. And I think that that does you know that does correlate you know historically that there were knights who made it their business to be attorney knights. I mean, I don't know how deceptive they might be, but obviously you know whatever way that you can you know your opponents and know the situation to put yourself in, in, in an advantage was certainly going to help. Yeah. He didn't count on being outbid, though, on that last matchup, though. <laughs> yeah, that usually doesn't mean you don't usually have Blackfire rebellions at these tourneys. That's right. did not calculate that. But, you know, otherwise his plan did kind of go pretty well. And I couldn't fault him. Like, he wasn't the best guy, but he his he was straight up with Dunk, and he kind of told him that somebody was gunning for him, and well, he did try to kill him, I guess. So that wasn't very nice. <laughs> the Alan Cox, mm-hmm. Coxshaw, yeah, had uh, because of his jealousy over uh, John's fondness for Dunk, had yeah. uh, you know taken you know asked him to take him out. Um, yeah, I thought it was kind of described that you know he. He uh, didn't try as hard as he could. You know, if he'd been paid better, he would have really, you know, (laughs) did take him out. And I think, you know, he saw in Dunk, you know, when he saw how bad he was, he saw the potential for someone who could, uh, you know, help him run a scam. Yeah, it's like, well, I can hit this guy anywhere, and and he can take Mm -hmm. calls, and we we can set up a great scam going on. (laughs) What else we got? 
Do you think he was set up to be like kind of a suspected bad guy involved here? Or do you think he was just kind of meant to be a, a ver, add variety to the characters, um, to, hmm. to dunk, to dunk story? What do you think, Suze? Did either of you suspect him? Um, well, I mean, I think he was added to, to, uh, provide this, uh, you know, additional dimension that, you know, there are knights who are, are doing this type of thing in, in the world as well. You know, so it just, it gives us another, you know, like you were saying, it gives us a attorney knight viewpoint. Kind of attorney shell sword in a way. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah. It kind of showed another variety of dishonor, dishonorability, I guess, that Dunk refused to partake in and just kind of as a, you know, a foil to Dunk, you had this this character, this option that if he wanted to, he could make money doing this. But you can tell why he ends up where he does at the end, and why, you know, he 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 becomes this person that we read we read about. Why he is the hero and the character that we have all these books about. Is it a little bit too fantasy tropic the way Dunk refuses to have? Uh... I mean, we've talked about the fact that he may not be a knight, but really that seems to be the only thing that I can really think of about Dunk that I'm kind of like, well, that's iffy. You know, everything everything else about Dunk seems to be pretty on the straight and narrow. Um, And I don't know if that's supposed to comment on his naivete or 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 if it's supposed to comment on his, uh, you know, his honorability. It just seems a little bit... Um, a lot more fantasy tropic than than other characters in the main story to me. It does seem a little white knighty, not to you know. <laughs> yeah. But doesn't he, doesn't he seem like? I mean, he's kind of he he is the male uh, Brienne at a you know earlier stage. Obviously, you know, even with the relations. I think I had mentioned this last time. I, to me, what I see is that George likes to do this. Um, thing where he's showing the qualities of a true knight in these people who aren't true knights. And you have it with Dunk, yeah. and you have it with Brienne, and you have it to some degree with the Hound. Um, you know, there are people who are protecting the, uh, and doing things that true knights are supposed to do. And they're not really knights. Yeah, we kind of get their experience as like they're not um, the heroes of the stories, they're, even though the, he is the hero of our story. <laughs> but mm-hmm. they're not the heroes of these stories where they're um, super charming or very, um, in, I don't know, like <laughs> they have good words. They can speak well, unlike myself. <laughs> they can, you know, they can do, they, they are not Sansa's heroes that she, you know, has to have right all the time and, and it kind of seems a little self-evident to us because we are in his head and he is constantly honorable <laughs> yeah. like barely even tempted is he so it, so it does seem a little easy for us to kind of say wow he is two-dimensional but yeah. Yeah. yeah and evidently the apple doesn't far from fall far from the tree right because if Brienne is the same yeah. way yeah. Um, maybe right. that's just supposed to be was supposed to be another parallel kind of clue to, to build in about the whole um, you know, shield at uh, at Tarth and all of that. Right. And maybe just seeing how it doesn't always come easy and sometimes it doesn't always work out and they are hot and hungry and they are, you know, eating beef tougher than their boots, you know. <laughs> so it does kind of show how life can be and mm-hmm. it doesn't always work out 
as like you know, not all roses. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful experience for Aegon, you know, uh, for True. for his development to become the uh, the king who is more like a peasant than a king. You know, he's had these experiences, and uh, so he, he's a wonderful guide for him on this uh, this journey. Well, you just left the perfect opening for me to say to our buddy Bubba from the Joffrey of Podcast. See if Joffrey had just ridden around with Brienne for a little while. Oh, secret chapters. Oh yeah, maybe there oh, are. Maybe there is a POV chapter. Maybe there that is a, a secret POV chapter. Oh, I love the Pycelle chapter. That was great. There are a couple more things with Uther that I, uh, were, was kind of interesting. Um, that I just have little, little teeny tiny notes on. Is that um. <laughs> he does seem to call out uh, Glendon for not being the son of Fireball, and he goes into like the whole history as to why. And his his mom Jenny was not the most demure of women, so it's possible that anyone was his father. Uh, but he does call out. Um, he does not even have red hair, which I thought was completely <laughs> out of context for this Song of Ice and Fire genetics that we get. Because why are all the people of King's Landing so blind that? Cersei's three kids are not Robert's three kids. If this guy can see, like, he's not his son, his hair doesn't match, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, it, it does seem a, a little strange. Although, you know, it, the, the evidence is in the book. Maybe uh, maybe this book that Ned reads was written because of this. Aha! <laughs> there, there must be a way that we can track genetics. Wow, let's just write down their hair color. Lack of hair. And go around. And make sure nobody's dyed their hair. So you have to wash their hair and then write it down. <laughs> apparently, you can just wash dye out. That's what Damon does. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, I, I was wondering how the how the the, uh, the whole bleaching process or or the washing of the dye out works. But Let me just tell you, I've got bleach blonde hair. It does not just wash off, and you've got bleach blonde hair. It stains. <laughs> Things like this do not just wash out, unless Damon has blood magic. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, but but we also have a few examples too of the the Targaryens who had married into the Dornish family and that they don't all look you know Targaryenish either. So I'm um, sure, but people just complain about it. They never say he's not of their you know right you know, not of their loins because they don't have the same hair color. I just thought yeah. that was that just stuck out to me. It was very yeah yeah right. yeah. And I and I uh, thought that that was interesting that. Uh, that Ball has to, you know, go through all of this. Mm. And obviously he's got a chip on the shoulder about it and everything. But I think one of the things that's really telling is he obviously has some, some natural talent. Or he's yeah. Been, you know, been able to do what he did. And um, so to me that would be the most revealing thing because even though he has been obviously groomed and trained for this as much as his mother and sister could afford and help him to do, he still hasn't, you know, had that much of an advantage to be able to come in and and uh, do, you know, as well as he did in this joust. Yeah, it was only like the the teachings of a like an old squire who mm-hmm. was being paid in what rum rum and brothel services. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was, uh, yeah, he actually. That's a good point. Like maybe genetically, that is kind of an indicator, and and I think that is kind of what I liked about both him and Uther is that they were. Kind of like Jamie, and that like they maybe weren't the most lovable characters, but they could actually back up their actions, their words with their actions, and, mm-hmm. and you kind of have to respect them even if you don't like them. But in the end, I think I kind of liked um, mm-hmm. Glendale because he was so 
he was so spiky, but then he kind of came around and, you know, I guess because Dunk comes around, so do we. <laughs> right, right. Um, and how about um, how about Darren's uh, dragon dreams? You know, I think uh, <laughs> here is another example that we had. You know, we had the one in the Hedge Knight where uh, uh, Egg's brother, uh, Damon, has the dream. And then here's another one where I think uh, we're getting a fair amount of evidence that uh, when these Targaryens have these dreams that a lot of time, I mean, they don't necessarily come out the way the person thinks they might. <laughs> Obviously, you know, when uh, it, it seems that Egg is the dragon that uh, was half yeah. here and that, uh, you know, uh, Baylor Breakspear was the dragon that died in the first one. But it does point to the fact that there seems to be some significance to these dreams, that they're not just uh, nothing, you know, that when these guys have them. And they also, he, he talked about it the same way that Damon kind of did, almost as if, he he can tell that these are different dreams. It's not just like a normal dream dream. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That it makes them have a little bit more, uh, you know, you put a little bit more belief in them. But at the same time, like when they can be twisted from like a dragon will hatch is what you saw, and it came out to be egg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his being brain. found out. Yeah. Uh, it was a, well, but you know, water coming over the walls of Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, there, there's so many, there's so many things that about the dreams that are metaphoric and open to interpretation. That I, I guess, for me, um, it just makes me think: uh, how are they getting these dreams? I mean, it's not just magic coming yes. through their lines, right? I mean, mm-hmm. is this is somebody using glass candles even here? Uh, I'm not a huge subscriber to the all the dreams are caused by glass candle theory. I've I've heard a lot about that. I mean, I, I know I'm sure that you know, with uh, in Daenerys' situation with Quaith, and I'm sure that uh, uh, Marlon, the mage, uh, is probably doing some things with his glass candle. But I don't think it's like you know, every, every time somebody has a dream, that's where it's coming from. <laughs> okay, I'm folding up my tinfoil hat. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, go ahead, Cal. I know what you want to say. Go ahead. <laughs> what, you want to talk about my spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I felt so deflated because by the end, I was—I made a spreadsheet of all the people that showed up, who was in the red, who was in the black, and who was neutral. And by the end, I mean, Sir Allen, or who who spelled it out? Was it Sir, Sir Allen? Just spelled out that everyone who was invited had either fought for the blacks or had a grievance with them. <laughs> so it was like, if they were in the red, it's they still have a grievance, so it kind of ended up being pointless, but <laughs> um, it exists, it's there, and, you know, I ended, I used a lot of uh, the, the previous Blackfire Rebellion list to uh, to kind of make those connections. It was, it was fun, but... <laughs> fun, but uh, in the end... Uh, uh, pointless. You, yeah, you, <laughs> you, you, was, you just kind of like, uh, at that point, you were just like, oh, shucks. <laughs> yeah. Like well I guess I can fill in all the ones I had question marked at. <laughs> yeah, now I know. Oh, very good. What else we got, guys? Uh, well, one thing I liked when uh they were talking at dinner about the prizes, you know, besides the egg that uh that the loser of the last pill would get thirty gold dragons and then ten gold dragons for the knights that were um defeated in the, the last round. And I like this uh what uh Dunk is thinking here. It says uh Ten dragons is not so bad. 
Ten dragons would buy a palfrey, so Dunk would not need to ride thunder save in battle. Ten dragons would buy a suit of plate for egg, and a proper knight's pavilion sung with Dunk's tree and falling star. Ten dragons would mean roast goose and ham and pigeon pie. <laughs> I just liked that just uh, tickled me that uh, you know he's thinking about all these things he could do if he if he's able to win here. Well, oh, I love how so the last scared. one is food. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that one's in italics. <laughs> oh yeah, he was. I mean, at that point, you're just thinking, oh, what do I want right now? That's an instant gratification. What you do with your winnings. <laughs> mm-hmm. The others are are maybe thinking with a bigger picture. But then yeah, he just got down and dirty. He's like, never mind. I'm just gonna eat it. <laughs> Um, this, oh, I did, it's like at the top of my nose, but this is just one of the other, um, tiebacks there. Oh man, it just really felt like George was running out of ideas, but the scene where, um, Dunk went out for some <clears throat> fresh air and he overheard the two mysterious voices right. talking and, oh, our, our naive hero doesn't understand what all this conspiring is about and doesn't even recognize the voices. It was just very, <laughs> Aria scene. Yeah, they felt very Illyrio varies. Yes, it did. <laughs> and I had to go back and reread it, and I was like, wow, it was obvious there that the um, the person that they're talking about is having a dream. And, well, then we, we like, very soon after hear about, um, you know, Sir John's dream, and mm-hmm. John the Fiddler was like, oh, yeah, okay, he's the dragon. And, I don't know, it's so obscure when you read it and you don't know what's going to happen next, but it's so obvious. <laughs> Upon reread. Yes. It's very obvious upon a reread, I and suppose so. To to go into that, that quote a little bit more, I don't know how much you guys uh were uh interested in some of the minutiae. Matt, no? Did you Oh sure, go ahead. <laughs> so it was just they were talking about Bittersteel and this was actually discussing the fact that um he doesn't have the sword um meaning Damon and that this is not they don't have bitter steel, so why are we doing this? This is a beggar's feast, they call it, like trying to incite a rebellion based on how, I don't know, I guess like momentous or how um, close they came with their last rebellion. And here you have this young kid who sure is charming and perhaps very skilled, but he's no, you know, he's not his father. He's young and he doesn't even have the sword so these are some of the things that, that kind of like on a reread I was breaking down like oh so Bittersteel doesn't even either doesn't know or doesn't approve that they're doing this and that's this is kind of where we talked about earlier Bittersteel's uninvolvement in this um, became clear to me and and why do you think that is do you have an opinion about about that I think that his absence kind of spoke for itself about his opinion of Damon the younger I mean he's right yeah, so, I mean, he's not Bittersteel's son, so maybe there's some, like, competition there. Because mm-hmm. I think after this one, doesn't Bittersteel put the crown on his son's head? No. He goes to the next, uh, the next oh, son of Damon. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is still uh, Damon's children. Oh, no. Who's not Damon? What's their, sorry, what was Damon's dad's name? Darren. Darren's son. Am I remembering this? No. So many no, uh, no uh, Damon is the son of Aegon the Unworthy. Oh, they're both Damon, right? His father's name is Damon, and his name is Damon. Yeah, so Aegon. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay, the, the, the next Damon. Okay, well, this Damon here that, <laughs> that's in this story, that's what you're talking about? 
I know. So Taken is the next one that he they attempt to crowd, and that's Damon's brother and also Damon's son. Figure that one. (laughs) Wow. Because his first two sons, the Aegon and Aemon, were killed in the Redgrass field. Right, and how confusing is that? Because we have Egg <laughs> brother Aemon. Like, why? Why do this, George? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, because he is there. He is trying to kind of of uh, copy history there. I mean, how many Henrys and Johns and uh, you know, actually, there's only a couple of Johns. But I mean, you know, how many of these kings they all have the same name when you go to these, you know, to England sure. and France and stuff like that. You know. Well, and isn't it uh, a, a fairly vain thing to to name a son? You know, keep a, a line of. I, I, I one of my good friends, a sax player, is Dennis Moser the third. You know. Mm-hmm. So. Trip? Do you call him Trip? No, I never call him Trip. I never <laughs> call him Trip. I call him Jerk. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Trip, that's like me saying, that's clever. That's, yeah. Oh, it's from Enterprise. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, has the has the season, uh, the, the music season, is it growing long? <laughs> Are you running out of out of patience with your fellow musicians? <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually I haven't played gigs with Dennis in years. He's a good guy, but oh, <laughs> no, I wonder but why we don't we don't get along we don't get along real well on stage. No. <laughs> but it's an act. All right. Uh, What else have we got, guys? Well, I have one thing I'd like to mention, and this is just due to some recent reading that I was doing. Um, They did the thing, the Bear and the Maiden Fair here in the the story, and that being such such a prevalent song in Westeros. I just wanted to suggest to people that people who might be interested in learning a little bit about the use of bears in the story might want to check out a website called the Mythological Weave of Ice and Fire. And there's a whole section there that someone has done uh, where they, um, there's a big post on at westros.org on this too, but then she went ahead, uh, goes by Sweet Ice and Fire Sunray. Um, anyways, uh, she did this very researched um, uh, bears in uh, our culture ancient culture and the mythology behind them and then uh, associates that with some of the ways that George has used it both for the Mormons and the Bear and the Maiden Fair and so forth. And it's really interesting. So um, I just wanted to suggest that people might want to check it out. You sent me that link in email. I did. I did. Yeah. She's actually got a lot of other stuff there too, where she's kind of like, uh, you know, that, that big one that you had, Matt, where they were associating it with all the Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, this one uh, is looking at Greek mythology and, uh, you know, associating Leanna with uh, Presperon. Pres- it goes underground, you know, for a certain number of months a year and so forth. Anyways, it's all there. I won't take a lot of time for, uh, you know, to, to dive into that. That's not what we're here for. But just wanted to tell people <laughs> that it's another resource out there. And uh, the bear and the maiden fair and the interpretation she comes up with is really interesting. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's like something like just hearing, you know, that the bear and the maiden fair made you think of this whole, right. uh, you know, like, I don't know what you call it, essay that somebody did. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, what was the other song in the story? There was another song. I can't remember now, though. Yeah, it was uh, the, just scrolled past it, uh, Two Hearts That Beat as One. Okay. Ah. 
to, <laughs> to be this one. Oh, Susan, you're such a nerd. I love it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I just love it. You know, I mean, I, I, am not, I am not the one who is going to be able to come up with these great ideas and so forth. But I'm I'm good at reading this stuff and assimilating it and then sharing it. Yeah, that's that's kind of that's that's what I consider to be my niche. And uh, this is just, yeah, this is a really cool one that uh, thank you. Really appreciate. Um, and uh, just uh, when you're talking about two hearts would be as one. Thinking back, to the, you know, this poor girl in the story was getting married to this Butterwell. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and who you know Walter Frey having uh, uh, rabbit on her and. Cause the poor thing to be married to this old man. I know, I mean, not that that's unusual life. in this society, but still. Well, she was messing around with the kitchen help. You can't yeah, do that. I agree. I agree. That was stupid. That was her true love. Uh, maybe <laughs> Probably not. True love. <laughs> it was young love. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, she kind of did, did end up screwing herself in the end there, but true, truly. Well, it won't be so bad. Well, actually, at the end of it, it is pretty bad because does he have a house anymore? He doesn't have, like, a castle anymore. They're kind of hackers now. Yeah, I mean, here he lost both of his sons. He had them fight on either side, and they both died on the red grass field. And then after this mess, he loses his his, uh, castle. Yeah, and I wonder if that's, like, George's, like, ability to fit this book in without having to rewrite anything that he's written before or explain anything he's explained before because he did say that like the castle was newly raised within the past 40 years and then at the end of it Blood Raven is promising to take the castle down stone by stone (laughs) (laughs) this is the only time that this castle appears in the series because reasons right yeah well we do we do get the connection though between Aegon the Unworthy and the reason oh, that sure. this guy had the dragon egg in the first place. So, and I, I do think that's referenced in other places. So, <laughs> yeah. What else we got, guys? Anything? What? I don't know. <laughs> uh, those are all the things that made me smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm about out of my list too. Wow. Uh, okay. Well, We're I, down. I, I have thoughts uh, and feedback for us. Perfect. Great. All right. Uh, this is an email from our friend Pat, who's at Patman23 on Twitter. Uh, he says, Dear Matt and the Red Widows, whom I dare <laughs> not exclude, uh, just finished listening to the discussion of the Sworn Sword, the second Dunk and Egg novella. It was great as always, and I enjoyed hearing Susan Kelly and Stephanie's takes on the novella. I just finished reading The Mystery Night to finish off A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, and I'm interested in going back and listening to the discussion on The Hedge Night. And once you all cover The Mystery Night, I'll go back and reread all of the Duncan Egg stories. I have a few thoughts or reactions I'd like to contribute post-discussion of The Sworn Sword. First, the weather. There was some discussion about the weather in The Sworn Sword with some observations on the climate of Westeros in general. I know that there have been scholarly works trying to justify the variable seasons or some kind of crazy axial tilt or weird orbit of Planetos, but I've always liked the assertion that what the people of Westeros call winter is a mini ice age caused by magic because it shows up unnaturally fast, doesn't last long, and ends unnaturally fast. Fast being relative to the more normal cycles of ice ages on Earth which happened in geological time. This isn't a theory I fully came up with, 
it's something I read somewhere, but I don't remember where. So winter would be the period of ice age-like activity. Summer would then be normal weather is when normal weather is in effect, and spring and autumn are the transitional periods between those states. I think during all four of those big macro seasonal events, there are more regular seasonal changes. In A Game of Thrones, Ned and Robert both remark on the occasional summer snow in the north, and there's references to false springs, which I assume are warm periods during the winter. Because the occurrences of the many ice ages are so frequent, this larger cycle of weather just dominates the perspective of the people of Westeros in regards to what a season is. My point is, I think the drought happening in Westeros during the period of a sworn sword is not a typical occurrence. Summer in general throughout the Song of Ice and Fire seems to be a time of plenty, and there doesn't seem to be the, to be the equivalent dreaded attached to winter is coming in the reach. I don't know if summer is coming is, is anyone's words. I have a lot more thoughts on the axial tilt of Planetos, which I think is probably not as much as Earth's, but I'll pass on rambling about that for now. Taking Dunk at his word. The conversation around Dunk possibly never having been knighted by Sir Arlen of Pennytree was eye-opening to me. I don't think I realized that Dunk was impersonating being a knight, and I guess I took Dunk at his word when he talked to others about the brief knighting ceremony he described and the fact that any knight can make a knight. I found the whole idea of Dunk's point of view being unreliable somewhat notable because of another assumption that some people have made about Duncan when reading the stories. My dad gave me A Night of Seven Kingdoms as a Christmas gift, and he took the liberty of reading it first. He told me that Sir Duncan was very stupid. I think my dad formed the opinion entirely from believing the things Dunk would say about himself, Dunk the Lunk, thick as a castle wall. In my opinion, Duncan was not stupid. He was uneducated, and he would make mistakes. But in general, I thought he was very on the ball, and, if not particularly clever, not a blundering oaf. I'm curious now how other people view Sir Duncan if he's considered a big dummy or not. Well, let's stop right there. There's more to the email, but I, I don't think I ever got the impression that Duncan was, was stupid. I, I do think that he's somewhat naive about certain things, um, but I don't think I don't really think he's he's um, not smart. He he's obviously illiterate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's not smart. Um, Kelly, what do you think about Sir Duncan? Is he is he Sir Dunson? Um, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I think like, like um, Pat said, Patman said that the, the uh, he's uneducated, which is not a does not is not a judgment on capacity for intelligence. You know, so there's just not experience or exposure. So he's capable of um, learning, as we've seen him do, but he's also, um, I think, just inherently has good judgment. So I feel like there's a lot of um, signs for high capacity for intelligence in that way. How about you, Susan? What do you think? I totally agree. Both, you know, the, the, the issues are that he is, he's not educated and he's naive. Um, that he hasn't been, you know, exposed necessarily to a lot of things. But, you know, now now he is, you know, becoming wiser as he gets older. And, you know, here at the end of this particular story, he was able to deduce that, uh, yeah, probably the dwarf that, you know, went, you know, that uh, climbed through the privy shaft when um, Blood Raven tells him that, uh, well, you know, a child could do that. So, I mean, yeah, he's able to put things together. Very good. 
Very good. Yeah, and you can kind of actually look back, and I'd be interested to do this. So, Petman, when you go back and do this, um, try looking for all the times that Dunk does refer to himself as Dunk the Lunk, and he's, like, down on himself. And, like, review those times and see if, like, it changes. Like, if he's – I feel like in the beginning, like, he might be he, – he might make some kind of um, ignorant – based mistakes but then later on like I know in this book for sure he was saying dunk the lunk and like I'm about to go stand up for somebody who's innocent and yell at a pretender and you know do the just thing and not the looking out for number one thing you know like is there a transition in his character from those things that he does call out in himself as being a dumb decision which really just aren't dumb anymore they're just um, not what somebody who has some like self preservation (laughs) priorities would do you know yeah, uh, there's definitely a decrease in the number of instances between the first story and um, the, the the Sworn Sword and the Mystery Knight. I don't know which one. I know the Hedge Knight has more Dunk the Lunks in it, but uh, I don't know which one of this, whether it be Sworn Sword or Mystery Knight, that comes in second in the number of instances. Right. <laughs> yeah, good point, Scully. I think that's a great recommendation that he do that, and it's good observations. Absolutely. Uh, Pat finishes up with this. Egg the Squire. Although I like the discussion comparing Egg to Arya and to Young Griff, I think there is a third squire that should be considered as a point of comparison, the wonderful Podrick Payne. Mm-hmm. Egg is not similar in temperament or personality to Podrick, but one of their notable similarities was their encyclopedic grasp of heraldry. Uh-huh. Because Egg was not expecting to ever sit on the throne, like a later Aegon assumed, I kind of associate Egg more with Podrick, who was not ambitious and just happy to serve a shining example of knighthood. Sir Duncan, uh, the Sir Duncan slash Lady Brienne connection is also a plus for me. I'm looking forward to the next brand analysis and to hearing your discussion on the mystery night. Uh, I like uh, the comparison to Sir uh, to Podrick just because of the the knowledge of heraldry. Um, on the other hand, uh, you'd have to think that um, Podrick was probably made to do this. I almost feel like Aegon has more of an interest to it. He's a prince. He doesn't really have to know anything, does he? I mean, he's being told he has got to, he's going to school probably at a younger age and, and getting better schooled than a Podrick. But it just feels like, uh, you know, Podrick is, is a guy who has to make himself, whereas Egg is a guy who doesn't really have to. Um, and has taken this more of as an interest um, than as a, a need. Yeah, I think I think he is being encouraged and supported by his dad because I would say that there's, you know, ever Mike just thinking of it now is that since Aegon the Fourth, they're kind of like maybe it would be for the best if we had a king who, or even like if our royalty, because I guess maybe even Egg was not considered to be possible for king. Right. Right. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh I think those are, are good points as well. And then the the idea what I really like is the fact that we have uh like the Aegon is choosing to spend time with this uh uh because he really likes uh Dunk. You know, he came to be really fond of him through the the whole instance of is of what went on with the hedge knight. But uh, you know, he's putting himself in really rough conditions that he did, wouldn't have to to do it all, you know. So I think that's extremely commendable. 
can, can I just put my tinfoil hat back on real quick to ruin everybody's day? All right, smooth it out. Because he, he, uh, at the end here, Pat mentioned the, the Sir Duncan Lady Brienne connection, which is uh, fairly obvious. And, of course, if you read Feast, you, you know about the shield and all of that. Here, here's, here's my crackpot theory. Brienne is not uh, Sir Duncan's relative. It's someone else um, in the story. Because I think, did George at one point say that, the, that one would be revealed? I thought it was, you said that it was it was revealed and that it was pretty obvious. Okay, was, darn yeah. it! Because I was just gonna say I was just gonna say no. It's the fact Tanzel too tall just <laughs> ended up in in the in Tarth somehow, and she just painted the shield because she remembered Duncan. She, and had a baby. Maybe Tanzel too tall is Brienne's ancestor. <laughs> well. <laughs> I, and I think I heard somewhere that maybe that there were, you know, there was a possibility that there was more than one. And I know yeah, that's what we, I was... we've talked about that. I think that, uh, isn't it um, up on the wall, uh, uh, Pippin Grin, Grin has been you know, thick as a castle wall. I think it's, yeah, things right. like that have been said about him. And, uh, so, and of course, the Hodor thing. Right? right. Yeah. And Hodor, yeah. 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 So, all right, well, tinfoil hat's been folded and put back away. Oh, so reverently, as we know, you love it. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, I did a search of Ice and Fire, and uh, Lunk comes up in Hedge Knight five times, in The Sworn Sword 15 times, <laughs> and in Mystery Knight six times. <laughs> 15 <laughs> times? Really in Sworn Sword? I just don't recall reading it that often. Yes, sir. <laughs> Uh, well, you have to remember, like, Venice, I think, would use it sometimes. and Oh, yeah. And well, he uses it more as, like, so he doesn't say dunk the lunk because of cats. He doesn't say the whole thing. He just refers to himself in his mind as lunk, what are you doing kind of thing. Okay. All right. Well, there goes that uh, in terms of th- his own uh, self-progression of, of uh, lack of uh, or building confidence in him. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. Well, it could be context. So that was just a very cursory. Right. Search. Yeah, I think there's more to like what you said, Kelly, about the fact that uh, you know here you have Dunk at the end of this story being able to stand up and do the things that he did that there's no way he would have had the uh, the courage to to do that type of stuff in in the Hedge Knight. Yeah. Awesome. Very good. Any comments on the weather of Westeros and Planetos uh, that he had initially? Oh, I, I dug that. I was watching. <laughs> we didn't have internet for like a week and a half. It was pretty pretty rough, but I did have all of these like old science documentaries saved that I just hadn't watched because <laughs> why watch that? I've got Netflix. Well, I didn't have that, so we watched all of these like old like 2005 like planet documentaries that are pretty cute now. But um, some of them, I learned some things, you guys. So the planet Venus rotates backwards, which I would think would be fascinating. So all the other planets in the solar system, like in our solar system, rotate the same way. So Venus rotates back backwards. And also um, Uranus is like on a, on like a 45-degree angle. So I wonder what that does to it. Like it's like, you know, it's magnetic north. Its poles are not like ours, which are pretty vertical. And unlike ours, they are on 45-degree angle. So there's like precedence a little bit for some of this stuff and if you look in like orbits of like other galaxies they have these really wonky orbits that aren't all on a disc like ours so there's some interesting 
like, of course, like my nerd brain is like sciencey watching this, but in the back of my brain, I'm going song of us and science. So yeah, it's it's interesting if you look up the, the, like this this whole like debate has really interesting um, scientific uh, minds working on it who are have all kinds of nerdy interests that span both astrophysics and <laughs> yeah the Game of Thrones. <laughs> Susan has because uh, again uh, I'm I'm very bad about getting to things uh, too quickly, but uh, has Lucifer Lightbringer brought up anything about? The, the axle shifts or anything in any of his presentations? No, um, I don't think so. No, and it's not really about so much about the planet. He, a lot of his stuff is more geared around the idea that, um, you know, coming from that one story that is in the first book where there were two moons, mm-hmm. you know, and the one moon um, was uh, that the, the comet that came by, you know, hit the first moon and that that was, uh, that there was magic involved in this is all back in the the uh, the dawn age, you know. So to what degree some that magic was influencing this, I I'm not sure. But right. that you know the long night was caused by this huge meteor shower from the comet hitting this uh, uh, the second moon that okay. no longer exists. And what's real interesting about that is when you go back to ancient. Uh, mythology and and looking at the way that people would describe these things in ancient days that that uh, meteors are you know called dragons and there's just so much similarity to all of it it's it's really interesting but it, it, he has i don't think he's gone in, into anything about the uh, the planet itself it's much more about the moons and the comet okay uh, so forth. i just was interested i thought he might uh dive into that too so uh if you happen to be listening we uh do <laughs> you do it, you do it, Matt. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, that's way too. The, those guys, like history of Westeros and, and that guy, they put in way too much time with their research and everything. I just like having other people on who have done the research and asking them questions. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> right. Kind, of, kind of lazy that way. Oh, Matt. <laughs> well, I volunteer if if it was waiting. <laughs> A 90-page spreadsheet attachment with the podcast is on your way, folks. <laughs> yeah, you'd love this stuff, too, Kelly. If you haven't been listening to his podcast, I think you'd love it. All right. I'm going to have to get that from you. Sounds up okay. my alley. <laughs> right on. Um, some information. Well, thanks, guys, so much for, for joining me. Uh, I really enjoyed having you on once again. It's great to uh, get schooled on A Song of Ice and Fire yet again. <laughs> Uh, I feel like uh, coming off of this podcast, like I've been struck in the head by a lance of, of knowledge. Oh, and, brown dragon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, feel, uh, I feel very enlightened. It's always a pleasure. Kelly, if people want to talk to you about A Song of Ice and Fire in between your, your, uh, your creating of many spreadsheets, how can they do that? <laughs> oh, please do. Um, I'm Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. And... If I, you know, so that also goes for any sciencey uh, nerds out there too. I'm, I'm all about that. <laughs> please, please uh, reach out and uh, solidarity, ladies, and gentlemen. I'm all down. With, I'm down with both. I'm down with everybody. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm really looking forward to to doing uh, the next one. I know this is kind of like the end of this little this little uh, section. So, thank you for having me, Matt. Thanks again for making the time to be with us. I know you're a very busy girl, so I appreciate it very much. Yeah, Burning Man next week. Just letting you know. Right on. Starting that last semester. Get in there. Get it done. Get her done. (laughs) That's right.
Uh, Susan, thanks again so much once again for your expertise and, and your vast, uh, wide on the spot knowledge of, of a song of ice and fire. It's always very much appreciated and you're always turning us on to really good stuff to, to use to supplement our, our time period while we're waiting for the next book or waiting for the next season of the television show. How can people talk to you about a song of ice and fire? Well, thank you very much, Matt, Matt, you're so kind there. And, um, I just, uh, I'm going to do a little Bubba plug here. I, uh, I am on Twitter at uh, Black Eyed Lily, and I'm trying to hit 300 followers. I'm getting awful close. So anybody out there that isn't following me that would uh, like to, to sign up, I uh, pretty much, uh, I'd say probably 75 to uh, 90% of my, uh, my tweets are sending people information about Song of Ice and Fire stuff, and the rest of it, uh, it may be some other uh, fandoms that I'm that I'm fond of. But uh, I'd love to get a few more followers so I can hit that 300 mark. Oh, momentous! Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> good luck. Good luck. Uh, do it. Make it happen, folks. I mean, uh, yeah. Bubba at Fit and Trim. That's F I T T E N T R I N. <laughs> I think he's got well over 500, maybe over 600 mm-hmm. now. So uh, if if he him, the guy who never shows up anymore, can have that many <laughs> followers. Um, no, we love you, Bubba. Uh, then you, Susan should have at least twice that many. Uh, I, just, I need 15, like 15 more people. I'll start using yeah. the hashtag Susan to 1,000. Uh, oh, ambitious. Yeah. <laughs> and, and talking about Bubba, I mean, that podcast that they came out with, the Joffrey podcast for Monday, uh, was, uh, was a classic. That was wonderful. If people haven't heard that yet, they should definitely tune in. And you can find me on Twitter at WonderfulPod. <laughs> See you later. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.